The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the original series episode, Shore Leave. Surely not. Surely surely you must be joking. I'm not joking, and stop calling me Shirley. (laughs) Joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Father Corey's on assignment. He's uh, on a mission, not a five-year mission, I hope. But uh, he'll be back with us next time. Uh, Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends to help us grow our community of listeners and uh, reach more people. Uh, We we love how the show is growing, and you can help us continue that. Also want to plug another show on the StarQuest Network that you will definitely enjoy called PlayStation Portable. You look for it wherever podcasts are found. PlayStation Portable, not PlayStation, PlayStation, it's a pun. It is the Liturgy of the Hours or the Divine Office of the Catholic Church, and it's a nice way to pray throughout the day in very short segments. And it's one of the oldest podcasts around. It's been around for over a dozen years at this point, and it is a great podcast. It's one of the oldest forms of Christian prayer, too. It is. It is. It's it's excellent. It's even older than the rosary. Uh, so uh, I love praying it with my kids, and they really do a good job with it. They've, in fact, have memorized large sections of it, which is awesome. So check that out. Pray Station Portable. But today we're actually talking about an original series episode, Shore Leave. Uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what this episode's about? This week on Fantasy Island, the crew is <laughs> desperately in need of shore leave, and they beam down to a planet that turns out to be a giant telepathic holodeck with the safeties turned off. Without realizing it, they start thinking about things which they then encounter. Some of the things are pleasant, but some are unpleasant and dangerous. They also progressively start suffering from tech malfunctions, and they lose contact with the ship. It's all relatively fun in games until Dr. McCoy gets himself killed, believing that a knight in shining armor is just an illusion that can't hurt him, and that leaves him defenseless in a fatal jousting encounter. Eventually, however, Mr. Rourke steps out from behind some trees and says that his people have only just realized that the Enterprise crew didn't understand that they had beamed down to involuntary Disneyland. And... The people who got killed, including Dr. McCoy, are really alive after all. Kirk then approves the shore leave that the crew is in desperate in need of, so everybody gets to beam down and live whatever fantasy they want, presumably after they satisfy themselves that the planet has strong privacy laws so that whatever happens in Space Vegas stays in Space (laughs) Vegas. I I think Ryza might be a better choice for shore leave, but but maybe they haven't discovered it yet. So... uh, yeah, that that's actually a really good summary. Um, the so I, it, apparently the original script of this had to be rewritten because Roddenberry thought it was too much twice, twice, right? Uh, well, we we should mention how they got the original because this oh, yeah. is first season Star Trek, and early on, I mean, even I, I after they had the pilots, but before they had the uh, as they were developing the series, the first season. Uh, Roddenberry wanted to bring in professional science fiction writers. He didn't yes. want just guys who were writing cop shows or cowboy shows, who most of whom didn't understand science fiction. He wanted actual science fiction authors, which would lend prestige to the show and give them better scripts. 
And so they went to people like Harlan Ellison, which got a city on the edge of forever. Mm -hmm. And they went to Theodore Sturgeon, who was another very famous uh, science fiction author of the period who loved writing for Star Trek. He, he ended up writing more than one episode. He later in second season will write Amok Time about oh, where we learn all yeah. about Spock's Vulcan mating rituals and stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is his first script, and he was just delighted to have written for Star Trek, even though they completely rewrote his script. <laughs> and so he originally wrote one that had a bunch of fantasy elements in it. And then Roddenberry was and or the network were concerned about maybe this is too much fantasy, so it needs to be toned down. And Roddenberry was like going on a trip or something. And so he let co-producer Gene Kuhn rewrite it. But Gene Kuhn didn't understand the mandate and amped up the fantasy elements. (laughs) So when Roddenberry gets back, it's even more fantastic than fantastic. And he has to urgently rewrite it on set. So they as like, they're filming, as they're filming, <laughs> they've set up a, like a card table and a typewriter for him. And he's banging out rewritten pages, trying to keep ahead of the cameras. And wasn't completely successful because they had a, had a seventh day of, of uh, filming. They usually did in six days. So they right. had, a, had a seventh day of filming for it. So yeah, that's, it was uh, it's interesting. It was also filmed like almost everything there's very little on the ship almost everything is filmed on location in these two locations a place called africa usa and yeah. and vasquez rocks right yeah. africa usa is a was a safari park and they filmed other tv shows there including doctari which was another famous show of the period set in africa mm-hmm. and then of course they've also got vasquez rocks in it which is the place where Kirk fights the Gorn, and it shows yes. up in a bunch of early Star Trek episodes, and most recently in the Picard series, as we talked about. Oh yeah, uh, that was that was awesome. Vasquez Rocks is kind of like the Wilhelm scream; it just shows up, keeps showing up. It's in everything, <laughs> anything filmed out in that in Los Angeles is probably going to have Vasquez Rocks in it. And, and when you go visit it, as I have, uh, be sure you're wearing good footwear because they have warning signs up for rattlesnakes. <laughs> yes. Not so much tigers, I'm going to guess, but definitely no. rattlesnakes. Uh, so in the story itself, there's an opening teaser, and it is kind of, there's this funny moment. I just thought it was very, very, it, it sort of sets the stage for this, there's quite a few comedic moments in this episode, it, mm-hmm. along with the drama, where Kirk has got this knot in his back while he's sitting in the captain's chair, and he's like, oh, oh, and he starts, thinks he's, thinks Spock is massaging this kink in his back, which is, would be kind of weird. Oh. And it turns out to be the yeoman is doing it. And Kirk is embarrassed by her massaging his back and not his first officer, the Vulcan. Which was kind of funny. It was very strange. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I didn't pick up on that. I just thought, oh, he's, he's, I, 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 I'm guessing you're right. What yes. I thought is, okay, he's having the yeoman massage the knot in his back. And then he's embarrassed when Spock notices this is happening. Right. But, but okay. Yeah. Either way you go. I mean, I guess you can argue which way it would be more embarrassing for, for him. <laughs> right. Now, speaking Cause, of cause the there are situations, you know, where it's like, okay, man to man, you get to do this, but I right. wouldn't want a woman doing it. Right. Especially it's, uh, his yeoman who is his underling and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and speaking of the yeoman, I, I have to say yeoman, yeoman Barros, I think is her name. She kind of fits in with, the 1960s era 
roles that women like the sort of the, the the general roles that women are in she ends up being a damsel in distress and is is all about the clothes at one point when she's a princess dress but she's is much more agency and independence and then a lot of the female actresses have had mm-hmm. apart from uhura because she's always i felt and like janice, she's always janice gets, rand a little more yeah i mean janice rand is like okay the power is out i used a phaser to heat up the coffee right 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 um, but Yoma, yeah, Yoma Barris, I felt like I really liked the character. I'm kind of mm-hmm. sad that they, they didn't continue it. Uh, now, Janice has already left the se- series at this point. So, well, yeah. I'm not sure about the production order, but, um, originally this part was written for Janice Rand. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that they wanted Janice Rand not to continue was so that Kirk would have an open field of people to romance, you know, right. uh, the girl in every port. But... This episode would have solved that because right. Yeoman Barrows is starting a relationship with Dr. McCoy in this episode. Which is another interesting element that they d- abandoned as well. Yeah. But if they had kept Janice Rand, it's like, okay, she's she's interested in McCoy, not Kirk. Kirk can romance whatever space woman he wants. <laughs> the next green-skinned alien gladiator that comes along can, <laughs> yeah. can romance. Or green-haired from the Gamesters of Triskelion. Right, 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 right. That's, yeah. So uh, I, thought, I, I liked that character. They, in fact, they had quite a number of secondary characters. Uh, you know, the Sulu gets a, a, a lot to do in this one, which I, mm-hmm. I, I'm happy with. But there's also the two others, Rodriguez and Teller. Yeah. yeah I forget her, or maybe it's Keller, but I forget her name. But we've actually seen her before. She is the in in um, the first Romulan episode. She's the mm-hmm. one who's hu- who's about to get married, whose husband is killed. Yes. That's right. That's right. And now she's with this uh, Rodriguez. They're uh, a survey team that, that yeah. has some ad- adventures. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to see the breadth of this and, and how they filmed on location, all this stuff. This is a very ambitious episode. The Now, so they say that this planet has no animals, no people. It's <laughs> got plants, but that's it. Yeah. And they've sent down scouting parties to investigate. So like Rodriguez and the woman are one team and uh, McCoy and Sulu are another team. And Sulu, interestingly, is is taking an interest, especially in the plant life and wanting to do cellular studies and stuff. And that continues the character trait they've already established for him in the Salt Vampire episode of being the man trap, of being a botanist. Yes. Because he's like got a whole botany bay right there on uh, on the Enterprise that he works in. Botany Bay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. But also, kudos actually surveying a planet before you approve mass beam downs. Good. <laughs> yeah. Good. Idea. Apparently that was the yeah they very clearly worked out in this in this case. Um, yeah, M- McCoy makes this offhand remark about it being like being something out of Alice in Wonderland. And then as soon as Sulu's got his which, back which turned. Which he, he has to say because they need to get the plot moving. It's nothing like Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The thing about Alice in Wonderland that was wondrous was not the trees. <laughs> the park-like uh, yeah. Uh, environment. Yeah. But that's when he sees the white rabbit and the uh, and the little girl, Alice, come running through. Yeah. <laughs> and we should, we should uh, fair is fair, we often criticize the uh, the American accents on Doctor Who. Uh-huh. So let's criticize the British accent on this little girl in Star Trek. She is clearly someone from California who has been 
sort of coached in how to say her lines in a British accent, but, <laughs> yeah. but it is not, it so. is not a good accent. Um, yeah. So the, the doctor, I think at first McCoy's like, I'm way too tired. <laughs> I'm seeing things. So it's at first it's, he's kind of dismisses it. Then we have a scene where Kirk is not going to go on the shore leave and, you know, Oh, I have to stay on the ship because it's, I get, I get stuff to do. And it's Spock who manipulates him into going on shore leave, which I, I yeah. really enjoy this. He is like, we have a crew member who's clearly suffering from this and that. And they say they're too important, but no, and, they're and the doctor. The doctor's medical logs show that this person is in desperate need of rest and recuperation, but he's refusing to do it. Yeah. He's becoming irritable and quarrelsome. <laughs> and so the Kirk's like, Hey, you're right. Ends with the safety of the ship begins. That guy's got to go on uh, shore on my orders. What's his name? James Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like he has to go. So I, I really like that. That's a good moment. Yeah. By the way, I wanted to comment on the park-like nature of this. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, you look at this on screen and it's like, okay, they this is clearly a safari park. But it you, if you look in the background, you see the dry California hills. Right. You know, that's just like all of a sudden the trees stop there and it gets taken over by desert chaparral. <laughs> right. And and even within the park, it's like, oh, someone has just taken a lawnmower here, but they haven't gone all the way up to the edge. <laughs> so it's the illusion isn't complete. But what I wanted to point out is notice that it's a park like environment that appeals to humans. And this is actually rooted in our evolution because our ancestors grew up in African grasslands. And mm. so our ideal environment is, and the one that we're subconsciously attracted to is not Arctic tundra yep. or desert or, you know, ocean tide pool. It's an area that's flattish and has grass, but also some trees and a source of water. And we recreate that every chance we can. Including in our yards. Including (laughs) in our yards. That's the ideal backyard. It's also the ideal park. And just humans, whenever they can, they create for themselves a a park-like environment that has flowing grass, some trees, and a water source. (laughs) You just described like every episode of HGTV (laughs) home Uh renovation. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. That is very true. Um, So I want to talk about like the, the various wish fulfillment episodes that happen in this story. So we, we have Sulu. We also find out about Sulu in addition to being a botanist. He's apparently a gun collector. Yeah. And, and we, we know he's had as an interest in weapons from other episodes, like when he does fencing and stuff. Right. When they're uh, all space drunk. And we, yes, I love that episode. So when uh, he, he, the, the planet gives him a mint condition police special 38 from the 20th century and i a love how he slug thrower he, he explains to you know how it it, it fires lead uh bullets because again, metal pellets propelled by expanding gases from an explosion yes uh, because 200 some odd 300 years in the future no one's gonna know how guns work <laughs> anymore <laughs> um kirk gets a chance to have revenge on his academy bully finnegan which i love that character it's just Kind of a fun leprechaun sort of character. Yeah. So, so Finnegan, I mean, I remember watching this episode as a kid and I hadn't seen it in a number of years. And I always hated Finnegan uh-huh. because he's this Irish stereotype. And 
I know people from Ireland and they have never fit this stereotype that you will see on 1960s television. I mean, they're like, I've always found Irish stereotypes on TV and how comically overblown they are yeah. really uncomfortable. I mean, I'm prepared to acknowledge stereotypes are usually based in something, but then they exaggerate it. And I've never felt comfortable for all, even when I was a kid with, and didn't know anyone from Ireland, I've never felt comfortable with Irish stereotypes. But on rewatching it, Finnegan's not as bad as I remembered. Yeah. It's more complex. It's not as broad. He's not as bad as the O'Reilly singing when they're all (laughs) Irish things, when they're all space drunk. (laughs) I really hate that. Yeah. So this was not as, not as bad as I remember. I also like that he, because he's an upperclassman in the academy, we get our first glimpse here of the academy uniform. Mm -hmm. And like the later academy uniforms they'll the that they will bring out in the in the DS9 and TNG era the dominant accent color for in addition to like the black pants but the accent color on the academy uniform is gray yeah that's true sparkly gray but <laughs> in this case yeah yes uh it and uh, the actor who plays Finnegan is nowhere near 20 years old the guy is older yeah. than 20 <laughs> But uh, and and you we get expansion of this char- of this character in, in 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 Kirk's real you know experience in the book autobiography of James C Kirk which I've, mm. I've read which is a lot of fun and so they they actually give us a lot more about his encounters with Finnegan, um and so we have Finnegan we have uh, Yeoman Barros is attacked by Don Juan at one point which is uh and this is a weird. little yeah it's a little uncomfortable in some respects from a modern perspective because she he he is he has not just shown up and tried to sweep her off her feet he's shown up and torn her uh uniform yeah so she's been attacked and right. sulu chased him off and that's that suggests that this is playing into the women have rape fantasies uh meme yeah. that uh that has at times been supposed yeah so a little uncomfortable the there that it that it's really showing his age in in that case um and then uh we also have another where Kirk sees his old flame Ruth this woman that he apparently dated uh what he said 15 years since he'd seen yeah. her so yeah. that would have to be just after the academy because Kirk at this point is in his mid 30s so it's mm-hmm. when he was still pretty young or during the academy yeah which makes it really uncomfortable because the, then Ruth this character would be like 20 to his 35. <laughs> and so it'd be, it just, it's a little bit, you know, uh, uh, summer and, and winter sort of relationship going well, on. Well, it's not that far. It's more like late spring and early spring. But, okay. <laughs> but, but she, the actress here also is clearly not 20 years old. Although clearly, he says, he yeah. says you haven't aged. Uh, maybe he had a thing for older women when he was in the academy. That's entirely possible. Knowing what we know of Jim Kirk, that's probably entirely possible. The thing I thought was a missed opportunity here is that this is not Carol Marcus. Yep. Yeah. And they could have easily, I mean, she's even blonde and we don't learn anything about her background. She could be a scientist. So mm-hmm. when writing Wrath of Khan, they could have just made it Ruth Marcus instead of Carol Marcus. And it would have been this character. Yeah. And it would have been consistent. With because she's portrayed as like this is the first woman Kirk thinks of, you know, as yeah. a, as a romantic possibility from his past. Yeah, that is a missed opportunity because yeah, if 
when you're writing about the con, you you really should dig into what has already been established and and make that connection. Well, and they did. They just didn't couldn't make this connection. Yeah. Also, at this point in the episode, which is still fairly early on, and I'd been thinking this even before, but this is like clinched it for me. There is some kind of chemical in the air on this planet that is making them all blind to how weird all this is. Uh, I mean, they're, I agree. Yeah. they're acknowledging how weird it is verbally, but they're not acting like it's as weird. They are not behaving as defensively as they should. There's something that's relaxing them and making them go along with this. Yeah, Kirk is acting, even at this point, acting kind of like almost like drunk or drugged in his responses. It's like, that's not just infatuation for Ruth. This is There's something that's, like, you would clearly, if you were in your right mind, say, well, this obviously cannot be the real Ruth. So something is going on here. But he he's like, nope. Yeah, and he's like, how can you possibly be here? But it, he's not questioning that it is her. Right, right. He's questioning how it can be her. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, we, there's uh, the moment where McCoy and uh, Yeoman Barrows have s- some romantic uh, flirting and back and forth. And uh, she finds the princess dress and he's like, sure, go ahead, take your uniform on, off and put on the uh, the princess dress. <laughs> sure, why not? Again, not using good judgment in either case here. <laughs> well, I mean, they could have pointed out your actual uniform is a wreck because of what Don Juan did to it. But... <laughs> True, true. <laughs> although um, although waltzing around with the big pointy hat and the veil is not really practical. <laughs> right, right. Um, I do like the line here where it's like when she agrees to put the dress on, she's like going to go behind some bamboo or something and is like, don't peek. And madam, I am a physician. When I peek, it is strictly in the line of duty. <laughs> know, that, was, that was a great one. Uh, I might have been saving that for later, but that's okay. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. No, it is a great line. Uh, Rodriguez and Teller, meanwhile, are being menaced by a tiger. Not sure. That we don't get an explanation of why there's a tiger. And for some reason, they have forgotten that they're carrying phasers to defend themselves. They they start to have tech failures in this, like when Sulu tries to use his failure, it immediately, his phaser, it immediately <laughs> fails. Right. But at this point, we haven't had that. So, uh, or maybe maybe off off screen they've tried and it didn't work. But uh, yeah, that, I I noticed that. Um, yeah, the the planet is draining the energy from their technology and interfering with communications. We don't and, get an explanation why. No, they never give us a good explanation for that. So it's simply for plot convenience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, McCoy. We have that whole thing with McCoy thinks the Black Knight on horseback. Now. Kirk and Spock, Spock who's beamed down at this point and left the ship without its captain or first officer, um, which is par for the course. For That's okay. Scotty, who doesn't appear in this episode, can be in command. That's right. So they, they've figured out that the safeties are off, quote unquote. McCoy has not yet. And so he thinks that the Black Knight is a hallucination and takes a lance in the chest while he's standing there. I mean, that was, I mean, you don't, obviously in the 60s, you don't see anything graphic, but it is pretty dramatic moment when you're a kid watching this yeah and it's nice for once for people to be wrong on the desperate bet that this is just an illusion or something and yeah it's all going to be okay i mean people are always taking insane risks thinking it's going to be okay in shows like this i mean you got a giant statue of liberty weeping angel on your tail just jump off the building and you'll survive <laughs> it'll be okay time will reset yes referring to an episode of Doctor Who we've talked about recently. Uh, 
Yeah. So, and then we have, uh, and, and, and McCoy is dead. As far as if, if you're watching this for the first time, McCoy is dead. And it's dramatic given how often different characters escape death at the last second. You know, and you might think, wow, they've killed off this character. Kirk is so moved by McCoy's death, he actually does a Captain's Log supplemental about it. <laughs> so at some point, he walks away from the body and opens his communicator and records his Captain's Log supplemental. That's one of the things I've, I've realized in my current rewatch of these episodes is how often we have these Captain's Logs that appear out of nowhere some, somehow in the midst of action. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, so and which they, reveals their purpose is to update the people who who just came in during the commercial break. <laughs> right. And not really would anyone practically take a moment to record this right now. <laughs> yes, yes. If you if you've forgotten while you went out to get some more uh, chips, <laughs> here's what's going on. Um so they they are fascinated by the fact that the night is some kind of mechanical contrivance made out of plant matter. Yes, you mean a robot. <laughs> like like they don't come out and say a, robot, but he's a plant robot. Yes, it, which is actually kind of cool. Actually, that mm-hmm. it's the same same cellular material, uh, and in fact, everything on the planet is made from this same manufactured material. In fake, yeah. we also have uh, a samurai that chases Sulu, mm-hmm. and we have like a World War II plane group of planes that yeah. strafe. Uh, Rodriguez and Teller, and actually, if you look, it looks like Teller is hit and dies. Yeah, uh, but they then don't make any any they don't follow up on that. So apparently, she gets resurrect brought back from underground, just like Doctor McCoy. Right, right. There were All, uh, zeros, I think, Japanese yeah. zeros. Yeah. Also, later Spock lets his thoughts get away from him because he's talking about how we must all control our thoughts. You know, just like in where no one has gone before. Yes. And it's like that's going to work. And he and 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 he thinks of the tiger again. <laughs> we have to control our thoughts cuz we don't want that tiger showing up again. Yeah. If someone <laughs> thought of the tiger, oops, and there it is. And although this time you can actually see it's on a chain. Yeah. It's I it's saw like that. tied to a tied to a peg in the ground. So it's not going to it's not going to it's not going to hurt our actors. Yes, we do not want to release a tiger anywhere near our uh, our our stars. Um, and then there's an extended scene of Kirk chasing down Finnegan and beating him to a pulp, it, like he's a leprechaun in a pot of gold. I like in this scene, like he's demanding at this point that Finnegan give him answers. And Finnegan, you know, they've just been beating on each other and yeah. and they're both really tired and injured. And, and he says, I want answers. And Finnegan takes a handful of dirt and throws it in Kirk's face and says, <laughs> earn them. And the fight is on again. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so Kirk gets back to the to the glade, the you know the park. Uh, he's got Sulu Rodriguez and Barrows, and he makes them stand at attention and tells them, you know, um, don't ask any questions. Being at attention, yes, don't talk, don't breathe, don't think. And it's like, I'm not sure that works <laughs> the way you think. And that's when uh, Mr. Rourke comes out, yeah, uh, to tell them, you know, oh, you've you, you've ruined our well, not ruined, but uh, we've just realized you don't understand. That this is all for fun. Yeah. Um, and he it, wants to sell them some fine Corinthian leather. <laughs> and uh, he explains that, uh, you know, they are an advanced race and they use the park as a play place. And so one of them says, oh, um, oh that seems weird. Why? Yeah, would, it's such an advanced race. Why would you do that? Sulu says says that it's like you're you're so advanced and you still need to play. And Kirk says the 
uh, the more advanced the mind, the greater the need for play. And yes. the and Mr. Rourke, because we never learn his name. He's just called the caretaker. Yeah. But we're calling him Mr. Rourke because Mr. Rourke was the mater d of Fantasy Island. Yes. If you've never seen that show. It's very similar to this in some ways. Played by uh, Khan. <laughs> yeah, all played by Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. Yes. And this this caretaker is not Ricardo Montalban, but the role no. is like, okay, you go to Fantasy Island to work out your issues through living a fantasy. Yes. A including like beating up the upperclassmen who tortured <laughs> you in the academy. I mean, that would be a fan <laughs> that would be a Fantasy Island type plot. It would. Um but uh so so the caretaker agrees. Yeah, the more advanced the mind, the greater the need for play. So I guess that explains Mr. Spock. <laughs> right <laughs> uh none taken captain just standing right here yeah. <laughs> yeah well he says yeah earlier that he doesn't need to be need to play so that was kind of uh interesting um uh so they kind of a, a counterpoint to that mm-hmm. um yeah the uh actor is who plays uh, the caretaker is oliver mcgowan who uh shows up a lot in a lot of different uh, guest appearances and things so mm-hmm. um and uh, and, and also Spock has to explain to us what an amusement park is because apparently they don't have amusement parks in the 22nd century. Or and 23rd that's okay. Century. Um, yeah. I, they, well, they have, he should just say it's a low tech holodeck captain. <laughs> right, right. Because yeah. Uh, so they decide, oh, well now that we, and then, oh, McCoy shows up with two showgirls on either arm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and notice they've each got, so one of them's like wearing a kind of pink costume and one of them's wearing a yellow costume. And they look like Vegas showgirls. Yeah. And look at their belly buttons. They've got, they've each got a little bead that is appropriately colored for the, it's color coordinated with the rest of their costume. They got a little bead in their belly button. And this is because in the 1960s on television, the censors would not let women show their belly buttons. (laughs) And so this is the Star Trek way around that. You just put a bead in it. Which... Letter of the law, but not really the spirit of the law, I guess. No, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, this was a big issue on, on I Dream of Genie because Barbara oh, yeah. Eden's wearing this genie costume, and they had to find a way to make it cover her belly button, except when they had wardrobe failures. Right, 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 yeah. Um, so, uh, Yeoman Barros gets jealous, and... Uh, and, and I'm like, hey, you thought of Don Juan. <laughs> Right. Who's 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 having stray romantic thoughts here? Double standards. Double yeah. standards. Well, Don Juan and the Black Knight. I mean, a little of both. True, there. both. She, she, yeah. Well, okay. So now we're even. You had Don Juan and the Black Knight. I have the two space showgirls. <laughs> so we end uh, things where they decide to commence transporting shore leave parties down. Uh, pre- pre- tell them to prepare for the best shore leave they've had, says Kirk. Uh, which, Although the Mr. Work says that they need to take the appropriate precautions. Yes. It's like, yes. Uh, okay, which would be? <laughs> yeah, don't think of deadly things. Yeah. Maybe you could like make things less deadly. That would be the thing. Kirk is uh, uh, going to go back to the ship and take, you know, to, to things. But then he sees Ruth walking toward them and then decides to stay for a day or two. I- I'm uncomfortable with this. Mm-hmm. A little bit because that's not really the woman Ruth. No, yeah. The ethics of this feel a little icky. Oh, they it's are. It's like holodeck They're, stuff. Th- this is well, <laughs> this yeah. is a giant telepathic holodeck. Yeah. And and uh, you know, there's lots of activity that is presumed that is implied 
um, yes. to be occurring off screen that they could not show on screen for good reason in the 1960s. Yeah. Even if that and stuff... even couldn't show today without right. <laughs> warnings all over everything. But even if we if we if we say, OK, that didn't happen, that stuff. But even mm -hmm. if he's just spending a day or two in the company of his old flame, Ruth, it's really not Ruth. And it just feels uncomfortable. Like, I wouldn't want to like to think about like an, an ex-girlfriend from 15 years ago spending the day with a facsimile of me. That just feels weird. Uh, so let me let me let me think about this from a somewhat different perspective. Okay. So I'm a widower mm -hmm. and I have not seen my wife alive in almost 30 years. And in that amount, of, which is twice what, how long it's been since Kirk has seen Ruth. Yeah. And she wasn't his wife, but she was obviously someone very important to him. There are things I would, after 30 years, there are things you forget it's like, I know Renee had certain mannerisms and certain uh -huh. vocal inflections, but I just can't quite pull them up. And yeah. I, I just can't consciously retrieve them. But I, I remember the feel of the rhythm of her voice. And I remember the feel of the way she used her facial muscles, but I can't remember the details. I w and, but, and if someone said, oh, we can probe your subconscious, and give you an illusion of a living Renee so you can re-experience all those little things about her that you that you you know can't consciously pull up I would I would I would I would take it you know I I wouldn't I wouldn't um I I just to be able to revivify my memories okay and make them clearer and sharper and and I don't know that I would need a day or two to do yeah. that. Um, and nothing else would happen, which I think Jim Kirk has some different ethical standards <laughs> than I do in that regard. Right. right. But in principle, I could see spending some time with a facsimile of a long lost loved one just to help you feel and remember some of the things that you about that person okay. that that have that have been lost at this point. I wonder if it's different if it's someone who has died that you've loved mm -hmm. versus someone who it is. is I, it, there is a relevant difference yeah. there because he could always just get on FaceTime and talk to Ruth over subspace. Right. And presumably the relationship broke up like they she's moved on with her life and she's out there somewhere. Yeah, possibly um, as opposed to like, you know, if it, it, it could be like with if you've if you have a, a parent who's died or, a, mm -hmm. you know, a beloved grandparent or something like that. I could see that doing yeah. that. And same thing. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Parents, grandparents, other people you've lost. Mm -hmm. I'd be willing to spend time with a facsimile, knowing it's a facsimile, but just to remember and re, you know, sort of replenish my memories and my feelings. I agree with that. I do agree with that. Yeah, that 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 I have no problem with. Um, yeah, it, it's the. um it's the ex-girlfriend thing, yeah. which is which is a little weird, and and of course the implied whatever. But uh, anyway, as we uh, uh, as we end, we have this laughing on the bridge scene. Uh, well, yeah, we. This is the classic <laughs> ending where yeah. Spock. They're all coming back from their shore leave. Spock has been mined in the store, and he's like, "Did you enjoy your shore leave, gentlemen?" And they're like, "Oh yeah," and he's like, "Most illogical, ha ha ha." And then we have the clarinet of humor, <laughs> right? Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and then we like this weird 
uncomfortable, like extended laughing as he says it head warp back to Wadner Sulu. It's like, what, 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 what are you laughing at? Like, I don't understand. It's not the joke. that funny, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we have to end on, on something. But in general, I really liked this episode. It was a good story. I, I thought uh-huh. it was different from a lot of other uh, first season stories. It certainly came out. It certainly came out uh, better than a lot of episodes that went underwent two rewrites did. Yeah. And last minute rewrites. And Theodore Sturgeon, apparently he, he, he wasn't too ego invested in the script. He didn't mind the fact they changed it around. He was just delighted to have a Star Trek writing credit and he came back and did more. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Har- Harlan Ellison got a rewrite and it's like, Oh yeah. Ooh, scorched earth. <laughs> right. Right. He's never again. But uh, it was nice to see that you know the the on location shooting and uh, it was it, it was some new stuff. It was different. It wasn't clearly on a sound stage with foam rubber rocks and yeah. know, all that sort of stuff. So that was it, good. it was it was clearly on a manicured lawn with imperfect lawn mowing, <laughs> right? But at least it was real grass. <laughs> so, Jimmy, any final notes from you on this episode? Nope. Okay. All right. Let's uh, wrap things up then. Uh, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Matthew B., Joshua N., Paula W., Silas H., and Kelsey S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. Yeah. Uh, that's it from us. So you can let us know what you thought of Shore Leave, this original series episode. You can do so by uh, commenting at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the animated series episode, The Infinite Vulcan. Yes, oh. giant Spocks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. At least it has plant people in it. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, my dear girl, I am a doctor. When I peek, it is in the line of duty. 